All right, guys, sports fans everywhere. Welcome to another edition of the WTOP Huddle. And because it is sports, next man up. Dave Johnson off getting treatment today. We, of course, wish him the best. I am Rob Woodfork standing in, in the uh, driver's seat, as it were. And I'm alongside the usual cast of characters, George Wallace, Chris Cheon, Dave Preston. And of course, because it is capital season and we are in the throes of the playoffs, you got to have Ben Raby on hand. He is the producer extraordinaire on our um, sister station, 1500 AM. Glad to have Ben here. And of course, he's going to be our leadoff hitter because we're talking about the Capitals. That was a tough overtime defeat at home against Boston in game two. Uh, ben, it's never a good thing when your 40-year-old goalie sees more shots than he has uh, candles on his birthday cake. It's a good way to put it, Rob, and, and a, a missed opportunity, certainly for the Capitals. Not the optimal situation where they are having to trust their third string goaler, a veteran in Craig Anderson, as he approaches his 40th birthday here. And the blown opportunity last night in game two, leading the Boston Bruins late in regulation. You're on the verge of going into Boston with a two games to none series lead, despite a lot of question marks the Capitals have been dealing with here to start this series. Uh, the chance to have gone up 2-0 to have that slip away. So it's a missed opportunity for the Capitals. I think it's an uphill climb moving forward here this series as they now head to Boston and the Bruins have the home ice advantage. So very much we'll see how it plays out now. They do have a lot of injury issues, the Capitals to deal with, COVID issues still, Evgeny Kuznetsov, Ilya Samsonov working their way back. So an uphill climb for the Caps and very much a, a missed opportunity where they were on the verge of that 2-0 series lead. Yep, and just, just ben, five minutes I, I, away. Ben, so what's like? We heard um, they were on the ice, right? Yesterday practicing or yesterday for morning skate. How close are they to being back? And talking about Kuznetsov and Samsonov. Kuznetsov so they, and Samsonov. Yeah. yeah. So they, they were two weeks without any on ice action and, and, you know, in the COVID protocol. They came back over the weekend to rejoin the team in practice situations. George, it's hard to say how close they are because when they were in a similar situation earlier this year, keep in mind, it's the second time for both of them that they've right, been on this right. COVID list. And when it was January, February, it took quite a bit of time. It took quite a few practices to get them revved up. In the case of Samsonov, the goalie, he had a conditioning stint with the minor league team, AHL Hershey. That isn't even an option right now. So again, it's not ideal. I do think there's a little bit more urgency to get Kuznetsov in. Again, Lars Eller left the game last night with injury, so they're very thin as far as center depth. I do think the way Craig Anderson has played, he's been good. It maybe buys you a little bit more time to get Samsonov right and, and not have to rush him in, but it's, it's not ideal when you are without your projected number one goalie and a top <laughs> six centerman in Kuznetsov. It's, it, it, it's very, the timing could not have been uh, you know, much worse. All right, Dave, Preston, I think you, what's were, un- uh, you were working last night. Uh, what did you see? Well, I think what's unfortunate is you, you look at, uh, you know, an aside to Kuznetsov and Samsonov not being available, it, it, it's, it's a bad look moving forward big picture because in theory, Kuznetsov was going to be the eventual centerpiece of this team 
when Alex Ovechkin retires when he turns 55 or something along those lines, you know, like Keith Richards, he's going to be playing forever. Uh, And I think the idea was that Samsonov was going to be the goaltender of the future. They both had off ice issues before this year even began before this past month even began. So that's not ideal looking forward. Uh, Last night's game really started off at a frenetic pace. It was up and down. You had four goals in the first period. I believe the Caps' first two goals of the night were both Uh, tip-ins. It was was the type of Stanley, the type of game that you've come to expect between these two teams. If I'm correct, the last 11 playoff games between the Caps and the Bruins have been one-goal decisions, and that dates all the way back to 1998. I mean, that's, that's, that's a different century. That's some of the guys who are playing in this series weren't alive when there was last a non-one-goal game between these two teams. And unfortunately, it, it, you hate to see those late fades where they allow that late goal in the third period. And then the quick goal to Marchand is the most dangerous goal scorer uh, on the Bruins team. And when he's able to get that, uh, you know, that early goal before you even are in that mindset in the OT, it's it's only one loss. It feels like a double loss, especially with the series shifting to Boston. They need to obviously bring it in. The, the thing is with hockey is that it's, it's in the playoffs. It's been such a grind uh, of a sport in the postseason that they could easily come back to Washington up three games to one, given a bounce here or there, but they've got to make their own puck luck over the next two games. I, I will say a final thought real quick in 10 seconds here is there's ebbs and flows. They're inevitable in a series, but the teams you get the sense are, are trending in opposite directions. The Bruins as game two was going along. We're starting to get their legs under them. Their headliners were getting it together. Capitals again, they now head to Boston. Several questions as far as the lineup is concerned. I think two teams at least going into game three, you get the sense momentum moving to Boston side. What do you think G? I think that I'm not panicking. It was only a couple of minutes to go in the third period, and the Caps were about to be up 2-0 heading to Boston. I don't think Tuka Rask is all that great. He let up some not-so-great goals, not even during the regular season, but during this postseason as well. I would have been – sorry if that's making noise. Uh, this is kind of a candid moment. They're redoing what is, our uh, – This is uh, – that's that's great soundtrack for this. I like it. Yeah. I'm about to say, they're, they're broom from downstairs. Room. The broom. <laughs> so I'll be brief. I just believe that this Caps team is in good position. I think I'd take the best Caps player, Alex Ovechkin, over the best Bruins offensive player and David Pasternak. I know that they have Marshawn as well there featured, who's uh, definitely a threat. Uh, Krejci stepping up, DeBrusque. They have names there, but Washington has the experience defensively. I think that uh, John Carlson's better than Charlie McAvoy. I still think the personnel is better for Washington, and I think that they can go up to Boston and win too, potentially, because I don't think Rask is all that much better than Craig Anderson. I'd be more fearful of Yaroslav Halak. I don't know why he's their third goaltender, but maybe Ben can point me in that direction. <laughs> and another they- thing is their their top guys aren't the ones that are contributing in terms of the scoring, right? It's been the it's been the uh, fourth line guys. Brusque scores like yeah. every game, yeah. Right. So uh, I mean, you you need to see more out of the front line guys in. Uh, games three and four in Boston. Is that right, Ben? From a Capitals perspective, right, I, right. I, I think a little bit more finish. You know, Anthony Mantha played very well on a top line with Ovechkin and Backstrom. His playoff uh, debut here this spring for Mantha. But uh, I, I think that the, the bigger wonder I have as far as the Capitals are concerned now as the series shifts to Boston is how you continue to defend 
the Bruins headliners, their top line. Chris mentioned some of them, Bergeron, Pasternak, Marshan. If you don't have Lars Eller, who's been matched up quite a bit against the Boston Bruins top line, it's one of your top lines of defense if you're the Capitals. And if you don't have that at your disposal and you're already without Kuznetsov down the middle and you're very thin at that position, it's something I think the Boston Bruins could potentially exploit. And, and to your point, as far as getting the Capitals headliners are concerned, you're going to have to outscore Boston. In other words, if, if, if you are to win in Boston, it could be on, on the backbone of a high-scoring affair because I think the Bruins, you know, their headliners are getting going and I think the Capitals could potentially have some issues defensively. Oh boy. All right. Well, we Ben, you're not, Ben, you're supposed to come in. You're supposed to come in here and bring like, like uplifting this whole thing. Be an oh, objective, man, George, real. being the yeah. realist. We hey, want usually real. it's, we want usually real. it's Rob. Usually it's Rob that's trying to bring us all down. I will I say if, today, so if, I, can't, if, I can't be the party pooper today. So, if, if they uh, can rally behind the adversity, if they can rally behind Craig Anderson and all the injuries and ailments that they're dealing with, Good on them. They did it much of the regular season. We'll see if it carries over now. All right. So we go from Washington and Boston to, well, Washington and Boston, because the Wizards are on They're already in Boston to take on the Celtics. Here's optimism. Yeah, that's 7-8 playing game. The Wizards are the hottest team in the NBA here down the stretch. 17 wins since April the 7th. That is the best in the NBA. They're going up against the Celtics team that's uh, pretty banged up uh, in terms of missing their second leading scorer. So I'm going to say it, guys. I don't think that Bradley Beal should have played on Sunday. I feel like they took a little bit of a chance in uh, you can't, you can't beat the nets. You can't beat the 76ers. If you don't have Beal at at least 75, 80%. If, if that hamstring gets worse, you know, I would have taken the chance that you can beat a struggling uh, Charlotte Hornets team at home to get the better seating I would even roll the dice if necessary that you could beat a struggling Celtics team uh, in the play-in game and still have Beal uh, at least as close to healthy as possible. Hamstrings are tough to recover from, and that's something that's probably going to linger throughout the playoffs, but I would have given him the opportunity to try and rest that more so that he's closer to 100%. George, back me up. I'm not going to back you up. Because you weren't going to keep, you weren't going to, well, I'm, I'm just saying, Beal's a, Beal's a baller. You weren't going to keep him out of the game. I don't think that, I think that was part of it. If, if there was any chance he could go, he wanted to play, right? I don't think he wanted to sit on the bench with a chance to clinch that eighth spot. Knowing that they were already where they were, yeah. I, I just, I just see that as his mentality. This year, this team, like, like we talked about it last week, what, what Westbrook and Beal have brought the toughness and the attitude uh, to these guys that you're leaving it all on the floor. Now, would anybody have given Beal any crap for sitting out? No, knowing it's a hamstring, like you just mentioned, and how fickle it could be. But I think he just wanted to be out there. And he's not even on the injury report today we just saw. So that's good news going into tonight. So, but I don't think you're going to keep him out of the game. I hear you, especially as tricky as hamstrings are. But he just Beal's that guy. And to be fair, he did say after the game that the hamstring is not worse. He woke up Monday yeah. feeling better than he thought he would. So it looks like they really dodged a bullet there. But that's a that's a chance that I probably would not have taken if the decision were up to me. But that's why I'm also not coaching an NBA team. Dave Preston, what do you think? I think hamstrings are tricky. I think shooting strokes are tricky as well. I think he needed to play this past Sunday just to get some of his shooting rhythm back entering the postseason. I think if he's out more than a week, there's a little bit more rust than rest. 
I think if, if there were any issues with the hamstring, they would have managed his minutes a little bit more on Sunday. I think going into uh, the playing game with Boston, he's, he, he's going to have a sharper eye. He's going to have sharper rhythm. He's, his body's going to be in better shape moving forward as whether or not they uh, get the seven or the eight seed. They're going to have to play four games uh, or they're going to have to play potentially seven games over the span of two weeks. So he needs to be in game shape. And I think playing this past Sunday helped get him there. And I think uh, wiser heads would have prevailed had he been, uh, you know, a little bit more on the, uh, the danger, uh, you know, list, so to speak. Also right. loves playing against the Celtics. This goes back years ago. <laughs> yeah, this season, right. especially he, he, he breaks it in when they're playing Boston. That's right. And what's funny, uh, Christian, you can jump in on this. Uh, four years ago, uh, I mean, Beal is the only guy left from that Wizards team that, the you know, this was supposed to be right. It was, they're wearing the black and this was all black. To be a big rivalry and all of this. And now it's there's only one guy on each side who was playing on the team four years ago. Yeah, um, I'm just thinking, though, as far as tonight's game is concerned, though, you know me, I am the uh, resident gambler on this show. Last <laughs> night, I took an L taking the Capitals live in overtime. Did have them plus one and a half, though, in a parlay with the Blues under that hit. So it wasn't even night for me not to toot my own horn here. But the Wizards are two-point dogs tonight against the Boston Celtics. I'm seeing a lot of chatter on the interweb, the uh, people liking the Wizards. And why wouldn't you? They're the hot team coming into this game in Boston dealing with some key injuries. I think the Wizards are the sexy pick tonight, but is Vegas kind of telling us what this line uh, that Boston being the two point favorite uh, is actually the better team and going to win tonight? Uh, I don't know. We're going to see it. Every time the Wizards play lately, they beat the teams that they should be, right? Saturday night against Cleveland, perfect example. They beat them by 15. They needed to, and that was without Beal. They were 1-10 without him prior. So Washington's better, but I don't know. Vegas is kind of telling me maybe Boston's a play tonight. I mean, they're a really well-coached team, and, I mean, they still have their leading scorer, and they are pretty dangerous, um, uh, Ben. It, it, it's two teams heading in opposite directions, and I wonder how much this plays into it, though, tonight for and, and this new format the Boston Celtics, there's a part of them that felt they belonged in the top six. Mm -hmm. And having to play this game, I wonder mentally where they are as opposed to the Wizards, who, yes, they're the eighth seed and you can make the argument in a normal year they would be in the top eight. But let's be honest, they were playing for the play-in tournament, the Wizards were. This is why they had as much positivity and energy over the past couple of weeks. This was their incentive. And you have two teams, maybe once, they, once the ball tips and they're balling, they're just, they're in the moment. But I would think these are two teams coming into tonight's game, viewing it much, much differently. The Boston Celtics, what are we doing here? The Wizards, hey, we're here. We're in the dance. Let's let's keep it going. So do we? That's, that's good. That's a good point. That's no, a, that's that a very is, good point. No, that's an excellent that, yeah, point. because because now the Wizards, they got nothing to lose. They got, they're they're playing. They're just playing. They've gotten this far. <clears throat> um, they're going as far as these guys. They're 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 just playing and having fun right now. That's what they're doing. They're playing ball and having fun. Let's go out and play, see what happens to get the Celtics. We can beat these guys. They're confident they're thinking themselves. I mean, they, and you're right, Ben. The Celtics are, you know, missed opportunities here and there. They shouldn't be here. Do they have the mental toughness to get through a game against a hot team that, you know, they should beat? Let's be honest. And they should beat them. They're, you know, uh, but I don't know. I, I, I think you're right, Chi. Why would you not? 
ride with the Wizards uh, right now. But again, as we know, anything can happen. But uh, I, hey, here's one thing you can guarantee about tonight's game: it's going to be a, it's going to be close people will watch. Because, <laughs> yeah. People will watch. Yeah, I I I love this format. I don't know about you guys. I, do I love this. No, I do no, too. I hear people complaining. I hear people complaining about it. I, I, I know LeBron's complaining about it, but because he's playing in it. That's yeah, why. That's, that's but, exactly <laughs> why. Anybody complaining about it is because they're playing in it and they didn't think that they were going to have to. Yeah. So that's the thing. Yeah. The thing you will be concerned about, and I'll turn to Dave Preston because he is our resident uh, time uh, time zone kind of guy. <laughs> Nine o'clock tip on the East, Dave Preston. What do we think? Hey, well, it's it's only when it's a 9 a.m. body clock thing from a West Coast team, the Chargers coming to Washington. I, I do, and I, I'm all on board with this new format as well. It's the first tweak to the NBA uh, playoffs basically in 30 years. Uh, you know, it's so, I mean, it, and so it, it, it livens up the sport a little bit, and it really, it incentivizes you to finish in the top six. Yep. It incentivizes you to finish in the top 10 or, you know, higher in that uh, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10. So I, I like what it does. It rewards teams that win. And it just feels like with the whole, uh, the analytics where the, some guy in some with some slide rule said, you know, it's better to finish last than it is to finish eighth. And, you know, it's, it just, it's nice to see teams have an incentive to win. And it gives us more basketball, more more high leverage basketball exactly. late in the high year. Stakes, yep. And and, and 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 I wonder too for for next year and moving forward, assuming that the format sticks, talking about finishing in the top six, and you bring up LeBron and the Lakers are are annoyed that they have to play this. You know what? Maybe next January on the random Tuesday night when they're visiting the Cleveland Cavaliers, maybe we're not load managing all of a sudden. Maybe we're right. getting the headliners in there because hey, to finish in the top six, it's a little bit of an extra carrot now. Absolutely. I'm gonna leave. I'm and, gonna leave uh, you with this. Yeah, George. I'm gonna leave uh, you with this. I gotta go. Wizards win by three. Good night, everybody. Hey, give me some Ryan Kerrigan. Whoa. All right, he's already gone. So he's uh, <laughs> I wanted to get his thoughts on Ryan Kerrigan uh, moving on to the uh, Philadelphia Eagles. He's the all-time sack leader in uh, Washington football history, and there has been some really good history at that edge rusher position in Washington's history. So that's not a small feat. Uh, 10 years here. He's uh, one of a long list of players to trade in the burgundy and gold for that Kelly green. Um, do we think he's got anything left in the left in the tank or uh, you know, I mean, what, what, what really was uh, was Kerrigan's legacy here? I think he was a very good player on some very bad, very middling teams. Uh, he was the best player on the defensive side of the ball. He and Trent Williams with the two building blocks that the George Allen, uh, Mike Shanahan regime built their you know roster around. Uh, Mike Shanahan was not here long. George Allen probably overstayed his welcome. Uh, it was a system of three, four that I think for about maybe nine years of the eight years that they had it, people said, why are you running the three, four instead of the four, three? I originally thought it was a bad pick because he was a, a defensive lineman that they were going to move back to outside linebacker. And I thought, how is he going to be able to do that? Well, they didn't have him do that. They, they turned him into an edge rusher. And he's you know, he owns the sack record. Granted, they only count sacks from 1982 on if they did, uh, if they counted them back to the 1960s, the start of the Super Bowl era. Dexter Manley would be the all-time sack leader. That's my bone to pick with the NFL. When are they going to do that? Probably never. Retroactive. 
Exactly. Well, no, just, you know, because they have the game films, they have the play-by-play sheets. It can be done. They have interns that they're paying $3 an hour that they can have do this. You know, come on. Some, they, they, they've got wannabes and flunkies that can do this, uh, please. But and, to I, that point, and to that point, I think that uh, Deacon Jones would be the all-time oh, sack leader because that guy had I, probably 30 sacks in a season, at least. Well, I, I, I think if they did, you're going to look at some of the sack totals in the 70s when they let defenses do whatever they wanted to do, and you're going to see some sick totals. Two Tall Jones, Coy Bacon, uh, you know, Deacon Jones as well, L.C. Greenwood. You're going to see like, oh, my goodness, this guy had 22 sacks. Unfortunately, those are just legends and myths, but – what a great career Ryan Kerrigan had on and off the field. There were no issues uh, off the field in an era when it's uh, with social media, anything can you know go wrong. I and mean, the only thing that he did wrong social media was tweet yesterday that uh, he uh, <laughs> went to the Philadelphia Eagles. He did nothing wrong while he was here. And he was often the best player on a very bad defense. He was the, uh, and unfortunately they couldn't build a better roster around him. And uh, you wish him the best. I still think he has something left in the tank along the lines of five to seven or eight sacks a season as a part-time guy. He wasn't going to be a full-time guy in the 4-3. He'll be a good uh, edge rusher, uh, a guy off the bench, so to speak, for uh, Philadelphia. I'm surprised he didn't sign with his hometown Indianapolis Colts. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little surprised by that, too. And 95 and a half sacks, that's not anything to sneeze at. There are some mm. Hall of Famers that don't have that sack total. So, And I think he was one of the few players to uh, have seven and a half sacks, at least in his first uh, half mm. dozen uh, seasons in the league or something to that effect. Uh, I think two seasons ago was the first time he'd even missed a game. So yep. he's been remarkably durable. He's been remarkably good. And I'm going to take it a step further. I think he's one of those guys that you can list alongside a London Fletcher or a Clinton Portis or a Chris Samuels as guys who were probably good enough to at least be fringe Hall of Famers. And they won't be because they played on so many teams that were so bad and, and were just playing on irrelevant teams. If they had deep playoff runs or Super Bowl runs or Super Bowl victories to their credit, I feel like those guys would at a minimum be borderline Hall of Famers, if not in Canton. Tell me I'm crazy, Ben. No, and I'm, I'm glad you link them and you connect them with London Fletcher. Because when I think of London Fletcher and when I think of Ryan Kerrigan, I think of guys who showed up, literally, the Iron Men of, of the team for the past decade plus. Ryan Kerrigan, each of his first eight seasons, started all 16 games and just a fixture, a guy you could count on. And again, not unlike London Fletcher, you know, just a, a, a steady force when there was so much going around the organization. Their tenures overlapped for a little bit in the early 2010s, but two guys who probably dealt with a lot more behind the scenes than they probably deserved to deal with and had to have been a part of, but two guys who just themselves stayed on a straight arrow and uh, came to play and came to lead defenses, which weren't always uh, at the top of the league, but certainly their games themselves were. Yeah, and uh, Chi, I know that he wasn't a betting favorite, but uh, <laughs> how was, uh, how was uh, Kerrigan's uh, uh, overall uh, legacy to you? Well, a stat that jumped out to me was that he was one of only five active players to record 95-plus sacks and 115-plus tackles for a loss. The other four being Terrell Suggs, who I don't know if he's – is he still considered an active player? Uh, I, uh, I don't know. He hasn't officially retired, but he's okay. not. Right, right on. <laughs> J.J. Watt, Von Miller, and Justin Houston, and uh, that is pretty good company. Good company. Yeah. Um, 
to me with with Ryan Kerrigan, you know, it's unfortunate that he never really got to play for anything more title wise. But at 32 years old, I still think he can. I saw a lot of Chris Long comps and I can mm-hmm. kind of see that one. I think my favorite thing I saw on social media, though, yesterday was the picture of Splinter. And that was Ryan <laughs> Kerrigan and the Teenage yeah, Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> you saw that one? Yeah, yeah with uh, Deron Payne. And uh, now that they were grown and they were showing Splinter <laughs> out the door. And that's just kind of what it comes down to, right? There's no room left on this defense for Ryan Kerrigan. Mm-hmm. You've invested so highly with these picks on edge rushers. But now it is time for Kerrigan to go somewhere else. And uh, he'll always be loved here. He'll never have to buy a beer, probably. Maybe not the level of Ovechkin. Ovechkin definitely wouldn't. Um, you know, will everybody know Kerrigan? Probably. Um, great career here. And uh, hats off to him. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, parting, uh, parting thoughts here, uh, guys. Uh, Dave Preston. Big series coming up for the Nationals. They welcome the Orioles uh, this upcoming weekend. They're in the middle of a, a series with uh, the Chicago Cubs. And it it, uh, it feels it feels like there's all there's often a May June series with the Cubs that gives you a nice litmus test of where this team is. Uh, tough loss in the series opener. John Lester coughed up three homers. Uh, Kyle Schwarber did homer against his former team. Uh, this upcoming weekend, we're going to have two potential last place teams, though. The Orioles chugging along in what is a very good. AL East. Everybody is overperforming expectations. I mean, Boston's in first place, which boggles the mind right now, given uh, the, just the, the issues they've had over the last couple of years. Uh, but I think the Nationals being in last place, they kind of need to make a statement. Um, they do win uh, their getaway games. They've won five of their last seven getaway games. They need to start making a statement earlier in the series, though. It feels like they lose that first game and they're always behind the eight ball. They are able to manage a split or squeeze out a series or something along those lines. But looking forward to seeing the Nats and O's in uh, D.C. Not looking forward to hearing people shout O's during the anthem, though. That's just me. No, and uh, and we're probably going to overuse the whole battle of the beltways thing, and I'm guilty of doing it too. So, I mean, we'll trot that out for a while until the next time they play each other. All right, Chris Gian, last thoughts. My last thoughts, I'm going back to horse racing. It was the highest watched horse racing event since 2018, the Preakness, even though there was a ton of controversy surrounding it. Was it because of the fact that people wanted to maybe see what Medina Spirit would do without Baffert after the test? Uh, maybe, but it's, these things are still being wagered on. And that also leads me to my next point. Maryland, Governor Hogan, uh, by the time this is posted, he will already have signed the bill that gambling and DFS uh, paving the way for legality here in the next couple of months. Uh, so I don't need to be shady anymore about it. And uh, <laughs> the, we can enjoy our time at the uh, sports book at MGM and Maryland Live. It's going to be a great time for Maryland and sports betting and the NFL season. I can't wait for it. All right. So you no Chris longer Dion, have to use. Yeah. Chris Chion's no longer taking bets from the trunk of his car. Uh, ben Raby, last thoughts. Uh, I'll close the book here on the career of a former national starter in Jordan Zimmerman retired last week officially at the end of his big league career. And he said in his retirement press conference on zoom that in Milwaukee to end his career. Now, part of the reason it wasn't working for him, he didn't like the role. He couldn't get used to being a reliever and being used out of the bullpen. And I found that ironic because one of his highlights in his time in Washington that often gets slipped under the radar. People don't Mm. remember 
Jason Wirth's walk-off home run in game four of the 2012 NLDS until 2019, arguably the biggest moment up there anyways, postseason-wise in Nats history. That moment doesn't happen in game four if Jordan Zimmerman doesn't come on in relief and keep the game tied at one late in uh, innings and send it to extras where Jason Worth ultimately hits that walk-off blast. A great moment from Jordan Zimmerman, obviously not up there with his no-hitter, but that relief appearance was so, so valuable that fall. And I found it ironic that last week when he retires, he says, eh, the bullpen, the reliever role really wasn't for him. It was one of the highlights of his career that I think some folks maybe take for granted because it was ultimately the Worth homer that people remember most. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I had forgotten that he was uh, in, in a relief appearance in that game, too. And you also uh, drew the parallel between him and Ryan Kerrigan, how their, uh, similar their careers were. And just two guys, again, who in these parts maybe were a little bit ahead of their time. They missed when the going got really good. Zimmerman had a taste of the playoffs with the Nationals, but we all know he was already in Detroit when things really took off and they enjoyed 2019. Ryan Kerrigan, he put in his time. Now, finally, it seems those teenage mutants, right, are ready to, to take the next step and the young guns are ready to, to take things to the next level. Well, they're grown men and they're hoping to have the kind of success that the Nationals had in 2019, that's for sure. Well, that's another edition of the WTOP Huddle in the Books. And thank you for joining us. I am Rob Whitfork, alongside Chris Cheon, Dave Preston, Ben Raby. George Wallace is already off doing... Um, George Wallace things. He's supposed to be on air, but who knows at this point, because it's after the 15s and 45s, <laughs> we'll figure it out. Rob Woodfork signing off. You guys have a great day. Thanks again for tuning in and guys put them in break. <laughs>